Welcome to Female Pilot Club Podcast. If you don't know us, we're a plucky band of lumpy jumpers helping female written sitcom scripts take off and fly against the almost insurmountable odds presented by the TV commissioning system. And if you do know us, we're like those three old women in the corner of the pub fighting over the last crisp and rinsing their false teeth in their Guinness and sucking off the froth. <laughs> you seeing us, right? I'm Wing Commander Kay Stonham, and co-piloting today is Emily Chase. Hello there. Hello, Emily. And our guest today is writer, actor, and I would like to say national treasure. Oh, no. Trinket at best. <laughs> Special trinket. How about bauble? Special small trinket. Bauble. Christmas bauble. <laughs> yes, national bauble, Arabella Weir. Welcome, Arabella. Hello. Arabella is an actor and writer. She is best known as one of the stars of The Fast Show and currently as Beth in the hit BBC sitcom Two Doors Down. Her numerous TV credits also include Doctor Who, Harry Enfield and Chums, Randall and Hopkirk Deceased, Spooks, Posh Nosh, which Arabella wrote and starred in with Richard E. Grant, the first two series of Skins, Drifters and Pure. Arabella was also a main contributor to the hugely successful Grumpy Old Women shows on the BBC. And this year, she made her first soap appearance starring in Coronation Street. Her first two novels, Does My Bum Look Big in This and Onwards and Upwards, were both domestic and international bestsellers. And if that wasn't enough, her sold-out first-ever solo show, Does My Mum Loom Big in This, was at the Edinburgh Fringe Festival in 2019, prior to a sell-out UK-wide tour in 2020 right through to 2022. She has weekly columns in and written regularly for The Guardian, The Independent and The Daily Telegraph. Arabella is a trustee for Sarah and Gordon Brown's charity Their World, a patron of the single parents charity Gingerbread and a regular spokesperson for Cancer UK. She is also a trustee for and volunteer in the Community Gardens Sunnyside Gardens in North London. Wow. I mean, bauble. I'd Blimey. say that was a whole treasure chest, mate. Well, That's more than um, a special what trinket. What can I say? It's a couple of epaulettes. <laughs> So, Arabella, when we do our podcast, we usually make our guests, when they're writers who've worked with us, do what we call a parachute pitch, where we get them to pitch their show as if they're jumping out of a, a burning plane and they've got Commissioner hugging onto their legs. It's just a way to do a kind of an elevator pitch with more jeopardy. So it's the sort of another version of you've got a gun held to your head, pitch it. Exactly. Okay. A bit more fun. High but, stakes drama. Um, Exactly. But we thought, you know, as you're not pitching anything to us at the moment and you're not doing a show with us at the moment, we thought you might just want to tell us about what funny no's have you had? What funny uh, responses to pitches have you had? Or indeed auditions. Oh, God. I mean, any, auditions. Any me- mega turndowns. Oh, yes. And I've written about this a lot, actually. Um, if I am old enough for long before, I mean... Thank God for the Me Too movement. But I slightly approached it in kind of, yeah, this is terrible girls, you know, to the women it was happening to and that were talking about it. But I was thinking, I mean, that was literally every day <laughs> when I started. Oh, you're all, yeah, nice tits. I mean, not not directors when you were auditioning them, for, but when you'd got the job, the Sparks had talked about you like that. You'd go, oh, I like the new one, seen the tits on the new one. You know, people would talk about you like that. It was like being on a building site. It was. Because it was a man's world. And then if you went, mm, hello, um, in fact, I honed a lot of my comedy from knowing that I'd get nowhere by going, uh, do you mind, that's offensive, I don't want to be spoken to like that, I don't want to be objectified, and oh no, she's a bit of a pain in the ass. And of course I did what 
I should never have done. Of course, I should have been able to say that, but I did. I'd sort of go, oh, do you know what? I've got the gift of hearing and, you know, be sort of like, well, let's see your cock then. And oh, she's a feisty one and all that. Um, but you I encouraged used to get, them, basically. Yes. Well, I was just, I was being saucy. saucy you see, what yes. would I expect if I was being saucy, willfully saucy? Um, well, you're too sexy, somebody once said to me, but in a, obviously a bad way. It, you know, it's your own fault because you're being sexy. And uh, obviously, and um, nice compliment though. To be fair, no, no, no. He didn't. He meant it in a kind of your. What he meant was you're provocative. All right, and therefore you're engendering these feelings Mm -hmm. in these guys. So what can you expect? Asking for it, basically. Well, Mm -hmm. a different way of saying asking Mm -hmm. for it. He certainly didn't mean, oh, you're too sexy. (laughs) Um, And he certainly didn't mean you're too sexy for your shirt. Um, No, one I used to get a lot. So I started working in 1979, and. Not exclusively, but almost without embarrassment, I would get, oh, no, we'd like to give you this part, but you're too fat. And that would be, wow. you know, do you think you could lose weight? And the worst thing about it, so tragic this, is that I would think, well, they're right, I am a bit fat. I shouldn't really. I mean, I'm the same sort of generation as women like Greta Skaki, um, who was that very pretty girl who married Val Kilmer. That's so terrible, I can't even remember her uh, name. Uh, Joanne Wally. Uh, Wally. Um, and those were these you know, I'd go to auditions and those girls would be in the room and they were all gorgeous and slim. And at that stage, uh, late 70s, early 80s, there wasn't women of lots of different shapes. There were pretty thin girls Mm. who were acting or a couple of big fat ones. And I say that advisedly. But there was nothing in between, Mm. which I would describe myself as. Yeah, normal shape. A sort of normal shape. and, And I was too, not my words, theirs, I was too pretty to be the fat friend you know, which would be the normal role. Now you can be, oh, so we've got Joanne Wally and then she's got a fat friend she's at school with, or, you know, I'm making it up. And if you're listening to this, Joanne, no disrespect, but, you know, we'll get a a properly pretty girl and then she will have a fat friend or a kind of jolly... And a funny fat friend A funny fat friend, obviously. Mm -hmm. She doesn't... She needs to be funny because she's fat. Exactly. And she's not pretty, hello. (laughs) The pretty one just has to walk into the room. The fat one's got to do all the work. And... um, and they would say, oh, well, you, you, we can't really give you the part of the fat friend because you're too pretty. Um, and, we, and you're too fat. To, I mean, and yeah. I, but yeah, I never, ever thought at the time, obviously I was, of course I was a feminist already, not articulated in that way. But I wouldn't think, no, that's just nonsense. What do you mean too fat? I mean, I, I'm going to be doing any lifting. I mean, I'm, <laughs> I'm not a ballet dancer. Um, I think it's a receptionist and I'm pretty sure fat people can answer the phone. In fact, I've seen them do it. <laughs> so um, why can't I be the receptionist? who's only got three lines. Uh, in Because I'm fat. Um, difficulty picking up the phone. Um, so, yeah, that was, that was, I used to get that a lot. And in yeah. fact, it was out of that that I wrote, you know, whatever. 20 years later, 15 years later, does my bum look big in this? Because I then thought, oh, I'm going to sort of out my own bum in a kind of, I might as well be the thing I think I am. I might as well make make a feature of it, as it were. Exactly. I might as well make capital. You made a lot of capital out of that I did make a lot of capital. Very grateful (laughs) to my bum. In fact, my house over the road is out of my bum, literally. Yeah, I mean, it was a very misogynist time, wasn't it? I mean, we're of an age, I think, and I remember it in exactly that same way. And some of the things that were said were beyond belief when you look back. Yes, I mean, the industry, I mean, it is quite a lot, not as much, but it was run by men. It was for men. I mean, he, RIP, fantastic guy, who 
was a lot to do with the fast show. He actually told Paul and Charlie, Paul Whitehouse and Charlie Hickson, not to let me do Does My Bum Look Big in This because it was a lad show. And there was no, I mean, it was very much the time of Loaded Magazine and all that, but yeah. it wasn't exclusively a man show. And I don't think many of, most of the male characters were particularly laddish. You know, no. it wasn't a kind of lads, lads, lad show. And I just no. remember, yeah. Well, that's one of our questions, actually, because one, one of the things that I've said is sketch shows traditionally have been, you know, a bunch of blokes, haven't they, really? And, and from, one pretty woman. And one pretty woman. Thank you one very much. One blonde pretty woman, yes. usually. That was, the, that was the trend, wasn't it? Um, until, like, in the 80s, obviously, we had Victoria Ward with her wonderful show, and we had French and Saunders with their wonderful show. But then there was, apart from that, there was a bit of a dearth, wasn't there? And then there was that spate of, of sketch shows Later on, I was in a couple, you were in the fast show. And then it was, you were the one girl, as it was, as we were then in, in the gang of blokes. So what was it like? That was one of our questions. So as we're on it, we might as well talk about it. What was it like being the only woman in those very male uh, sketch show rooms? Um, well, I'm sort of, you know, half of me is thinking, oh, be loyal and discreet. And the other half of me is thinking, fuck it, tell them the truth. Um, it was... Very hard at times. And because, listen, if it had been a bunch of people brought up in Glasgow, irrespective of their gender, and I was the only non-Glaswegian, you know, there'd be a shared humour. And, of course, it's everything. We all laugh at stuff that we find funny and that we find them funny because they'd come from shared experiences and we're women. So it was anyway going to be a softer room for the guys because, you know, guys respond to guys just like in pubs, football, everything. And um, it definitely was harder for me than it was for the guys. It was just generally speaking a kind of softer environment for them. Um, Paul Whitehouse and Charlie Higson were supportive, but it, it was no question that it was like being in a sort of minor rugby team. Uh, and uh, I only say mine, I mean, obviously we were a major <laughs> show, but I mean, you know, um, and I remember thinking really clearly, um, I have absolutely got to fight. I mustn't take no for an answer. I mean, I've really, I, I remember being sort of stroppy and aggressive and I was thinking this is the only way I'm going to keep my he head above water. Mm. Obviously there were times that we were just a gang, you know, and mm. we were all mates. But I do remember thinking, no, I'm really, I can't let things drop. I'm, mm. I'm going to really have to push here because I'm not getting the same naturally soft response that somebody of the same gender would. Yeah. And, mm. and I think, yeah, I mean, and at times all the guys in the show were supportive and at times they weren't. And I don't know whether that would have happened if I hadn't been a woman but yeah, at time we, we we were a sort of dysfunctional family, and mm. Paul and Charlie were the mum and dad. So when you in the times when you did speak up or kind of kick up a bit of a fuss or whatever, how how was it? Well, one time very unsuccessfully, I just burst into tears um, because we'd had to we were on location and we'd had to ditch. No, we didn't have to. I don't know why I'm saying we. My sketches were towards the end of the day. And I think that day I was doing no offence, so no, maybe it was another character. But anyway, I was doing one of my characters. And, of course, you get into that costume and makeup, so you do all five or six of the sketches mm. in one go because mm. you're in the gear. 
And um, I won't say who, but two of the actors who were drinkers at the time, actors, show members, um, were drunk and had been so drunk that they couldn't film their stuff and they had to sober them up. So they just said to me, we'll just ditch your stuff Um, because there isn't time in the day. I know now. And I just burst into tears and I went, but that's so unfair. And then they went, yeah, but what can we do? Blah and blah. Well, can't we just ditch the drunk mm, guys? That's wait a minute. Now I've got an idea. Mm. Why don't we ditch the sketches of <sighs> the guys who've turned up drunk to work? Um, uh, but again, this was the early nineties, and that's not what happened. What you did was you did everything possible to make it possible for the guys who pitched up drunk to sober up so that you could do their yeah. sketches. Yeah. Oh you God. didn't go, well, sorry, guys, you've turned up drunk. We'll be ditching your sketches and we'll do the sketches of the woman who's ready. But I soon learned, I thought, no, don't burst into tears because all that's going to happen, well, I did burst into tears, but all that happened is people going, oh, my God, there's a woman crying, there's a woman crying, there's a woman crying. Instead of, why are you crying? Yeah, you have to sort of meet fire with fire, especially um, at that time. Now, I think it, I mean, I'd love to think, oh, I'm pretty sure it wouldn't happen. I mean, unless you were a megastar, I don't think they'd make allowances for someone turning up drunk. I don't... Well, if they did, what they'd know is that one of the women would tweet about it. And, yes. you know, then all hell would break loose. And, or somebody would just or would even, yeah, or go public women, or go someone. and speak to someone saying, I'm sorry, but I'm being, you know, yeah. I'm being sidelined by this person. Yeah, we, there's, we have recourse now that we yeah. didn't have. I mean, literally, people could sort of go, oh, but, you know, when the Sparks would talk about your tits or when someone would do that, you know, or when a producer would sort of go, you know, will you come to my dressing room and stuff, why didn't you complain? And I went, who would you have complained to? Yeah, who, you would have literally got, that's what he's like. Oh, just avoid him, that we now know the Harvey Weinstein people were given a lecture mm-hmm. about how to... Not be in a room with him. Not um, wait a minute. What about stopping him doing it <laughs> rather than us all managing his? But I mean, listen. I, my my daughter's twenty five, nearly twenty six. I don't think it would occur to her, not least of all because she's been brought up by me, to manage any man's behaviour. Mm. Not her boyfriend's. Not a male friend. Not a bloke on. The, of course, she would know if there's a crazy person on the tube. You don't go, don't speak to me like that. You move carriages because there's something wrong with him. Mm, yeah. mm. You know, she knows about how to be safe and streetwise and stuff, but it would never occur to her to cut her cloth because of a man's unacceptable behaviour. But women of our age were brought up with, don't annoy him. Um, don't, you know, don't get your dad in a bait. You know what your dad's like. Um, tell your dad that. it cost half that. Oh, That's what all we that used nonsense. To do. Tell your dad it cost half yeah. that. Tell your dad, don't tell him about that. Um, you, your dad's in a bad mood, just leave him for now. So, you know, it was all structured. In my live show, does my, well done, does my mum loom big in this? Because so many people, when I was doing the press for that, would go, so does my bum look big in this? No, it's does my mum loom big big in this. I love it. It's um, the best title. Really it is a good title, isn't it? Mm. Well, because of course it was all thanks to my mum that I was obsessed with believing I was fat and didn't fit in and wasn't pretty enough and all the rest. And um, uh, I had a girlfriend, still one of my closest friends at school, and her, you weren't allowed to sit in John's chair, her dad's chair. And you were like, but he's, I don't think he's in the country. That's John's chair. Um, we'll, we'll never hear the end of it if he comes in and finds you in his chair. 
And he was thinking, who? I mean, can you imagine saying to your daughter, just don't, I can't, can't cope with what dad's going to be like if he finds him. There's loads of chairs in here. He'll just have to sit in another one. Um, you know, but that whole kind of, it was completely normal to manage men mm-hmm. in whatever way it was. You know, even things like, will you have dinner with me? No, I don't fancy you. I don't want to. Thank you. Or something like, who do you think you are? Rather, you know, to dress it up in a way where do it nicely. I don't mean you should be unpleasant to people, Mm. but you should be able to say, no, no, thanks. It's not for me without thinking, I better say it in a way that won't make him annoyed. All that sort of nonsense. I'll make up something that will let him off the hook. Say, I've got a boyfriend. I'm not going to say I've got a boyfriend. I'm going to say, I don't want to have dinner with you. Thank you very much. So just because we were just talking about The Fast Show, could you just tell us a bit more how you actually became a writer on that as well, didn't you? Well, this is where I will say there was a very collaborative, inclusive atmosphere created by Paul Whitehouse and Charlie Hickson. They had worked with Harry Enfield very much, a lot, and very much as kind of, I can't think of the right word, not his equals, but as his writers. And then Paul did sketches with Paul, with Harry. But um, so they wanted their show to be where everybody was contributing um, and much more like a team. So when they first asked me to do it, it was literally, I remember we were in the BBC bar, those were the days, and they just said, um, oh, you're funny. Do you want to come and do this thing we're going to do? And then I went, yeah, all right. And then at on, at the beginning, I was sort of doing sketches where they needed a woman and I was the woman in it. Yeah. Uh, but then they said, oh, why don't you write some stuff? And then I wrote, does my bum look big in this? And then I started, yeah, I started writing the other characters I did. And I can say this, there was a character I did who people don't really know. It's a bit difficult what her name is. Her name is Girl Who Boys Can't Hear. And that came up from being in the fast show where I would, in the rehearsal room, where I would literally talk and say, so listen, I'm going to do this character. What do we think? She's going to have this accent and this is how I'm going to do it. Nobody would say anything. And then one of the guys would go, um, should we go to that same sandwich shop for lunch or stuff? And I'd go, guys, I'm actually talking. And they'd go, yeah, yeah, all right. What was it again? And i go, character's going to do this, blah. And they went, yeah, all right. I mean, gosh, don't need to go on about it. Um, and then, so I came up with that character because of that. And, um, yes, it was very, you were, I mean, Paul and Charlie absolutely encouraged me to write my own stuff. And it was them who said to me, in fact, they said, why don't you do someone who's a bit like you? And I said, what do you mean? You know, they went, oh, what's going on about the size of a bum? And, and I went, I don't do that. And they went, oh, yeah, you do. <laughs> uh, uh, so I've got them to thank for that. Um, but, of course, it turned out to be generic, every woman, pretty much. Yeah. Uh, well, a um, question that I've got is uh, it was a definite, it definitely struck a chord, didn't it, at the yep. time? Because I think it was the first time that a woman had spoken out about that obsession that mm. we all have and we all knew we had it inside ourselves. We were all constantly thinking about the size of, the, of our bums or thighs in my, in oh, my and case. Oh, yours was thighs. Mine was thighs. always bum. Yeah, not so much bum, thighs. And I remember even talking about what um, people were like with actors. I can remember my very posh agent at the time saying to me, well, of course, darling, you probably won't be able to do leads because you're like me, you've got those big thighs. 
No, well, because of course, what leading woman could possibly have big thighs? <laughs> leading women cannot have big thighs. Well, obviously she can't. You can't be a scientist. You can't be a doctor. You can't be a warrior. You can't be any of these things. Well, you've got the bigger thighs. Weigh you down. You couldn't do any of those jobs. It would be ridiculous. Yes, you'd be like a milkmaid, something like that. You can be, you know, the the woman in the background washing the dishes. I often wonder if agents say those things nowadays. Hopefully they don't, but. Uh... I think I don't I bet models agent. agents say it, but oh, I don't oh, think yeah. anyone would dare say it to, to, an, actor. Yeah. to an actor now. You, well, you couldn't be. I mean, because you'd be, you'd be fat shaming, wouldn't you? You would be. Um, you'd be in trouble. I mean, you, the, and also, I don't think anyone would say to you, "We're not casting you as Juliet in Romeo and Juliet because we don't believe she'd be overweight." They'd yeah. just say, "We're not giving you the job." Yeah, and they would never cleverer. say, "Yeah, they don't say um, it because loud. you don't look." Thin enough to be mm. a pretty girl in, uh, you know, medieval Italy. Yeah. Well, routinely, my friend and I, my friend would always say to me, I can't, I can't go over eight and a half stone because, you know, you can't get cast in a leading role over eight and a half stone. Well, that was true. I know. But mm. it was, but I used to, I mean, I think I was a bit more political at the time. And I said to her, don't be ridiculous. That's ridiculous. We can't, we can't, like, you know, live by those rules. We've got to. Uh, yeah, you can. <laughs> I mean, if you're an actress in the late 70s and, and earlier, I mean, you know, all those stories, they'd put Judy Garland on amphetamines. There's, a, there's, I think it's Summerstock, that movie. She's a different weight in lots of different shots. And they'd stop shooting and put her on amphetamines. Yeah, until she got thinner. Uh, until she got thinner. Mm. Um, I mean, you know, as long as somebody else is in control of your kind of image and, and what they're conveying. But I think now you probably wouldn't see a film, a romantic comedy that had a an overweight girl. She might be a bit rounder. I mean, you've just got to look at Bridget Jones. We're, the whole world was duped into believing that that's fat. Mm. It was fat compared yeah. to Hollywood. Mm. But for the rest of us, you're literally looking mm. at thinking, a that's woman. a fat girl? Mm. Mm. You're literally going, you know, the whole world's going, ha, 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 look at her, she's so fat in that outfit. And you're thinking... Well, if she's fat, I'm morbidly obese because mm. mm. she just didn't look like Hollywood thing. Yeah, you just couldn't see her ribs. Well, quite, yeah. and and you know, yeah, yeah, exactly. You couldn't see her ribs, but otherwise, you're like, oh. So we have fat shame. You know, you can't fat shame now, so that's better. Yeah. But on the other hand, we do have Instagram, which can obsess and destroy young women's, um, you know, self esteem. So, do you think young women have got it better or or worse? What do you think? Well, it's like everything when you open the world, you know. Airline travel used to be a brilliant thing and now it's ruining the planet, you know. Mm. Uh, I wouldn't. I don't know the percentages of people, boys and girls, who are affected badly by Instagram. I do know that I really, really strongly object to things like the Kardashians because you think these people aren't doing anything. It's not a show about a family in which one of them is training to be a doctor. And please don't say to me, if one young person says to me again, yeah, but she's training to be a lawyer. And I go, yeah, well, we've seen precious little evidence of that. <laughs> we've mainly got, you really upset me because you said there was gluten and the thing, you know, and you just think, how can people be watching these girls who don't do anything? I mean, they don't even do voluntary work. I don't mind if they're multimillionaires, but you're literally going, so my real beef is not with, because I don't know enough about the statistics about TikTok and Instagram and all mm. that, because if they've got phones, they're going to look at that stuff. But my real beef is is how reality TV yeah, has definitely. taken over the world because you go this nobody's doing anything it's not I mean it's bad enough that you do 24 hours in A&E but at least people are all doing something <laughs> you know um I mean I still hate the idea that we go 
well, that's television, where we just set a camera up in a place that's naturally dramatic because it's A&E. Um, but reality television, you know, I was just channel hopping before I came here, married at first sight, and you've got all these extraordinary-looking people all looking like, you know, we used to laugh at them, those sort of blow-up sex dolls, you know, because they don't look like... They all look a kind of like a weird plasticky version, even the ones who aren't rich enough to have had plastic surgery, but they've all got the crazy... Mm, fillers and stuff. Yeah, yeah, and the eyelashes and everything, and you think... Their expressions don't change. Yeah, but also you're just thinking, this is just people... No one's got a job, no one's doing anything. They don't write to me about married at first sight, I'm sure they've all got jobs, but what I mean is this is what television's become. That really bothers me, mm. because... You're not saying to young people, no, you need to aspire to be a doctor, a nurse, a dentist, uh, an architect, uh, a road sweeper. No, you can just be really thin and wear practically nothing and argue on television with someone you've never met before. And then that'll be that'll be a couple of series. We'll have 15 series of that, please. Mm. And then if you stay as a couple, you, you'll probably make money for the rest of your lives together. Not the rest of their lives. <laughs> Maybe a year if they're lucky. So body image... Not better or worse, you reckon? Then it's just—it's always going to be. It, kind of we're going to. I think it? we're going to correct because now we've gone. You can't fat shame someone, and of course nobody should be fat shamed. But you also should be saying to people that's not a healthy weight. Your organs will be in trouble if you mm. continue it that way. And the kind of yeah, I'm proud, and well, that's not a proud place to be because you're obviously overeating, and that's an issue physiologically. Mm. But I think we'll probably over we'll, we'll probably sort of correct back with the me too as well and the whole everything. We'll sort of, you know, level out, but I probably won't be alive by then. So how do you think the comedy industry is for female comedy writers today, opportunity wise? Well it's it's obviously better. It's yeah. got to be better. I mean, quite apart from anything else, it's not where all comedy writer performers come from, but there are many, many, many more female stand ups. Mm. And, you know, I'm old enough to remember when they go, we've got blah, 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 blah. You know, we've got so-and-so and so-and-so naming them and a girl on the lineup. Yeah. And they wouldn't say the name. They'd go, we've got this bloke, Joe Bloggs, you know, Andy, blah, Tom this, thing there, and a girl. Um, and I remember talking to Gina Yashere, actually, oh, yeah. who had to go to America, her own words, to sort yeah, of, you know, black and a woman. Um, we were saying... It's such a gladiatorial way of performing, you know, usually historically in a pub or a club, which are sort of male historically dominated venues, that to be a woman, you really had to sort of be blokey, mm. um, you know, certainly in the 70s, or, or have some sort of unique or just the ability to kind of power through when they're expecting to see blokes and behave and they're the audience are expecting to hate to behave like blokes shouting out stuff you know whatever and um I think you could easily go to a club now and see a lineup of all women and not think oh well that's a bit weird mm. I mean so I think it has changed and, and it must be changing I mean I'm not much evidence of it on television but it's certainly not all white boys who went to Oxford anymore, is it? It's getting better, isn't it? I mean, I think there are definitely more female stand-ups, I think you're right. But, uh, you know, when it comes to comedy writers, I think a lot of 
a lot of people in comedy are kind of slightly worried now, aren't they, about the whole, you've got to be a stand-up in order to get a sitcom. You know, that time when you could be a writer and just write your scripts and then cast it. Doesn't seem to be a lot of that going on anymore, does there? You know, what about just women who are just writers? Like Georgia Pritchett, she's always saying about the fact that she suffered, she thinks, because she wasn't, she was a woman and she hadn't been to Oxbridge, and also she mm. wasn't a performer, which she felt was harder. I, the thing is, I know quite a lot of writers, male writers, who've never been performers. Um, maybe, I don't know, I mean, I obviously admire Georgia Pritchett, but um, there's got to be space, surely, because... We don't expect all the blokes to have been performers, do you? Often, I mean, you know, I'm thinking of most of the sitcoms I've ever done. There's plenty of writers, or, or never mind um, sitcoms, most of the shows I've done. Well, the, because of my age, the majority of shows I've done have been, if not mm. all, have been written by men. And I can't think, apart from sort of a handful of them, most of them weren't performers. So I'd like to think. But again, it's that sort of boiler room thing when we don't have writers rooms like unfortunately in the way that Americans do which I imagine is partly to do with money but it's again I would imagine the atmosphere certainly on the fast show when we we never wrote all together but we'd all be sitting in the room together that was a blokey atmosphere Mm. now of course it was because there were I can't remember five six blokes and me um just as if it had been one bloke and six women it would have been a Womany atmosphere, mm-hmm. um, but well, I hope it's getting. I mean, look, there are there are you know, there's Lucy Preble and Georgia Pritchett, and there are women. Yeah, I I can't think of any others, but I'm sure they're you know. Oh my god! I think it is harder because there are a lot more writer performers, and then they because also often they're the performers and they've got that bit of profile on social media, and then that. Just I think it's of... more reassuring for the broadcasters, isn't it? They go, oh yeah. well, let's have Ashling B. She's fantastic. Um, performer and we've you know we've got a built-in audience and then I think a lot of the women who are getting commissioned to write shows are when you think about it they've already got performers aren't they I think high profiles on social media as well well that'll just be about commissioners insecurities won't it though and also kind of well I mean she's got like I don't know I'm making it up, 200,000 followers on Instagram so I mean that must mean that'll probably translate into a couple of million watching the shows Mm. But, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, we know nobody knows shit. Nobody knows shit. That Sometimes people do get asked that in on casting forms, though. That Apparently, form. yeah. 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 Can yeah. you imagine? Yeah, it's a thing. Well, they won't be asking me. Well, I mean, but yes, How I've, I've heard that. How many followers you got, Arabella? On Instagram, I've got 8,000, uh, which is apparently quite a lot. My hairdresser's hair washer said <laughs> that was enough to make me an influencer. <laughs> He's 24. And I was like, What? And I went, 8,000? He goes, yeah, you could be an influencer with that. And I said, what does an influencer do? And I would, for example, probably, t- you know, tenner pads. Um, I'd get 500 pounds every time I mentioned them. Um, that would be, pr- or, or what else would it be? Arthritic um, joint medication. Um, or the old favourite, Stenolift. Um, they won't be asking me to, you know, um, advertise new handbags or anything. And I can't remember, I 20 something thousand on twitter really? which i don't really do very much 
I might well, be more... Yeah, I mean, that's pretty damn good. Yeah, but I'm in a hit show, aren't I, in it? You are in a people hit think. show. That's and a also, show as yeah, well. I love that show. I'm I mean, adjacent to very famous people as well. People think they're going to get stuff because I'm adjacent to famous people. Oh, you fa- you're not. You're famous. You're not fame adjacent. I'm fame adjacent. No, but I've famous. got friends who are much more famous than me, which of course oh, means right, okay. I don't exist in their presence. And I think sometimes people think, well, if I follow on Twitter and Instagram, I'll... But I never, ever do anything on Twitter or um, Instagram, which are the only two ones I own, sometimes Facebook. Um, they really showing your age there. Um, <laughs> uh, that has anything to do with my private life. You know, I mean, I never, I mean, that thing, that's my, another one of my pet hates, not that we're talking about pet hates, is people go, you know, Barry Humphreys died and my first job was with Barry Humphreys. So the first thing I do is not find a photo of me and Barry Humphreys and pop that on Twitter going, broken hearted. <laughs> Me and a much more famous person than me. Just, I just want you to know, he's famous and dead, but I knew him. Um, and yeah. I'm alive, so I'm and, one uh, up. And I'm alive, but just want you to know, I did know him. Thanks very much. Oh, heartbroken. You just need to do the heartbroken emoji with a white yeah. dove. Yeah, white dove, beautiful. Oh, Is that when they've gone to heaven? <laughs> when I die, I please both do that. Will you? Yeah. I would really like that. I will yeah. be laughing from heaven if you do that. <laughs> So apparently, Arabella, I hear that you were rock chick. No, I, I, if you think of rock chick, you think of who's Susie that Quattro. Do you think Susie of Arabella? Quattro, you think of um, you think of Susie Quattro. You think of uh, you know Blondie, Blondie, Debbie Harry, yeah. and stuff. I was in a. We did rock and roll covers, and I was fifteen, and all the guys in the band were seventeen, and they were all at art school, and I was still at school school. And um, the guy whose band it was, Daniel Kleiman, is still one of my closest friends. And he's a director now. He directs all the Bond title sequences. Oh, wow. And, um, he, and, and commercials. He's a very, very successful commercials director. And it was his band, and we were called Bazooka Joe and the Lilettes. And I was a Lilette. <laughs> now, the reason Daniel... Uh, thought Lilette was a good name. He didn't know what it was, but he just saw it on a poster. So he thought, oh, that sounds like girl, girl singers, like the Ronette. And so we were called the Lilettes, the absorbing Lilettes, ha-ha. And um, we, the lead singer of the band was the older brother of Mike Barson. And Mike Barson, there's a lot of rock and roll history in... Uh, you know, attached to our band. So Dan Dan Barson was the lead singer and his brother, his little brother, Mikey Barson, would come to all the shows and then Mikey Barson started a band called Madness. <laughs> and then in our band, there was a, a bass player called Stuart Goddard and he had some mental health issues and said, I've changed my name and now I'm called Adamant. And um, so... Whatever he, happened to him. Whatever happened to Adamant, uh... And then our last ever gig, because we'd got a bit older and I was about to do my A-levels and wanted to concentrate on that very unusually for me, given that I've got one O-level. And I think we just weren't as popular anyway, but we, all the guys were at art school. So we did a lot of gigs at art school, art schools. And our last ever gig was at St. Martin's School of Art and we were supported by a band. um, And this is why it's rock and roll history playing their first ever gig and they were most of them at St Martin's School of Art and none of our band were and this band came on we they were supporting us they were playing for the first time and they were booed off in under a minute and they were 
What was the year again? Give me the year. 1973. Oh, blimey. Mm. I'm going to be literally no good at all. It's going to be somebody massive, isn't it? The Sex Pistols. <gasps> oh. And they were playing there. And they were the most awful collection. It was just noise. I mean, it was just like, Bleh! and everyone's like, and they'd come to see us. We were a rock and roll band. I mean, I don't mean rock and roll as in like rock and roll. We were rock and roll. It yeah, was yeah, all yeah. kind of Bill Haley and Chuck yeah, Berry yeah. and people danced. Mm. So they were in the room with these terrible boys singing this terrible, you know, Bleh! and everyone was like, what is this? Um, and there was nobody going, oh, I like, I like the look of this. Everyone was just like, and they were literally booed off in about 40 seconds. And I think that's in John Lydon's, I know it's in John Lydon's autobiography. <laughs> and the reason everybody remembers, well, we then remembered that they became, they were the Sex Pistols yeah, playing for yeah. the first time, but they remembered because Adamant was in our band. Yeah. And um, the rest is rock and roll history. But that was so pretty much are... the beginning and the end. I mean, I was in the band for a couple of years. Yeah, but you but are in rock and roll that's history. A great story. I'm certainly rock and roll adjacent. <laughs> I'm certainly, yeah, um, <laughs> punk adjacent. I thought it was brilliant when I when I read that, uh, yeah, Adamant had been in your band. I mean, he was huge, wasn't he? Yes, and I, at the time, Absolutely because it massive. wasn't the kind of... I had a long-term boyfriend then, but I... I didn't realise at the time how sort of unbelievably beautiful he was. He really was. He yeah. really was yeah. beautiful. He was stunning. He? Do you remember Adam? No, not really, Emily. No, no probably know. a little bit young. He's so too young to remember. He, he was, was gorgeous. really beautiful. And he started the whole new romantic thing. He, he was, thing, whole, he was yeah. like pirates. His whole thing was he was dressed as a pirate. Prince Charming, remember that? Oh, no, I do. Stand know. Yeah, and yeah, deliver. Yeah. yeah, he was a looker. He was a looker. <laughs> Not that we're objectifying men, thank you very much, ladies. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's about time they got a bit objectified, yeah, isn't it? Give yeah, them a place, place to their own medicine. Dish it out. Can't take it. So obviously you've appeared in three female pilot club shows for us now. Um, could you tell us a bit about your experiences on them and why you were so willing to get behind us and what we do? Well, obviously I'm <laughs> going to get behind. I would say, you know, please don't write me a letter but uh, if you're listening to this. But, I mean, uh, there's very few women driven things that I would say no to in fact I can't think of any unless it was porn maybe but um yeah I mean if women are doing something as a collective and for the advancement of other women I'm going to be there and um and also obviously I like the sound of my own voice so very happy to appear as an actor in any pilot script because that'll be me talking <laughs> and me listening to my own voice um and it's just always, it's never a mistake because you could, it's never a mistake to get involved. You might, you not in your case because you guys filter them out, but you might help someone and it might be the most terrible script. But if they're going to listen and if they've got a chance of making it, they'll listen to you tell them what you think and then they've got a chance and why would you not pass on? You know, it's all about helping others um in any industry but particularly women mm. um so yeah and the, and it's just it's also very good fun to do the female pilot club it's i've always had a good time the scripts have always been great i've always met lots of lovely other people and it's just really good fun to do and it's also nice to be out of the house nice to be out of the house and always which was, nice to be out of the house which was your favorite script say mine obviously Yours, obviously. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Okay. I think it was the, wait a minute. <laughs> the K-Storm script, now that I think about it. Oh, my goodness, oh, what really? a coincidence. Oh, she's here tonight, she's ladies and gentlemen. Oh, thank you so much. But you, that thing about, you know, 
helping other women and turning up for them and helping other women push other women. I feel that's a bit of a newer thing. Do you feel we had that when we were coming up? Were women no, no, no. Going out, going out of their way to help the, us? I remember thinking, so it's probably still true, but i be absolutely honest, I don't know. Casting directors were usually women. Mm. Quite a few of them were failed actors. Now, that's fine. But you, I remember always getting the sense that this woman, not all of them, there were some really brilliant casting women, but so you got this kind of feeling that they were kind of against you. And you kind of, I always remember thinking as a young, young actress, like 21, why would she be so mean to me? Surely she wants me or somebody to get this job. And there'd be a kind of, yeah, well, that's enough of that. Thanks. I don't think anyone's interested. And I just, it was, they were often cows, weren't they? Oh, and Mm -hmm. just sort of, I don't like this word. I never use it, but this is, you know, I do think in, I don't like the word bitch because I think that's gender specific, but bitchy. I think, can be non-gender specific. And I just remember thinking a lot of these women were bitchy. And I thought, I don't understand. Why would you make me uncomfortable? I'm obviously going to be shit now. I mean, yeah, I'm, I'm nervous now. And But there were some great ones. Patsy Pollock was one, you know, where you just felt supported and warm. But, yes, I think there was also... I mean, she's dead now, and I can say this, but a great friend of mine's stepmother was the very famous actress, Billy Whitelaw. And I was 12 and definitely younger than Billy, all right? She must have been, I don't know, 40 at the time. And she said, right, so you want to be an actress, do you, so that you can grow up and steal all my jobs? (laughs) And I was 12 and I remember thinking, how am I going to steal your jobs? Aren't you a bit older than me? Um, and, And I think, as in many, many walks of life, women are pitched against women Mm. and never more so when there are fewer parts for women than, or certainly there were, than there were for men. And the prettier, thinner one is going to get it over you because that's how they cast things. So I can see how the world, our world engendered a, a, a sort of nasty competitiveness. But A, I was never one of those you know, I was never, it was never going to be either me or Greta Skaki. You know, she was an absolute sort of raving beauty mm. and she was very good in her day. So I'm not, but I remember someone saying to me, a bloke, of course, there was a very good looking actress in something with me uh, that I was in as well. Can you believe it? And not her fat friend. And um, <laughs> I wasn't allowed to talk to her, obviously. And um, he went, I bet you hate her. And I went, why would I hate her? And he went, well, look at her. <laughs> oh, and, and, but so I'm, I think there was a lot of that around yeah. as well, which is that if you're not kind of, you know, if you don't look like Greta Skaki, then we all hate the women who do. And I go, I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't look like her even if I sort of put my, you know, work into it. I, you know, the, but the idea, mm. well, that we're all competing for... Mm. The same men, we all want men's attention. And so, yeah, but I think, yes, I think, I mean, it wasn't Nancy Pelosi. Was it Madeleine Albright who said there's a special place in hell for women who don't help other women? Mm. Mm. Um, I think it was Madeleine Albright. And and she's definitely older than us. Um, And so, but I think sort of saying it, uh, you know, owning it and saying it is a fairly new thing. 
I think there just were women like us who kind of mm. never felt competitive towards other women. Might be envious of other women, but not competitive towards them. No, it's it's so much nicer now. It feels so much more. And also, just mo- it makes more sense, really, doesn't it? Well, we're all we don't. Nobody gets help anywhere. Each other. Yeah. Not helping each other. Yeah. Mm. We don't lose out. If you mm. get a job that I went up for, you were going to get the job anyway. You mm. don't, I haven't lost out. You know, mm. I hadn't kind of, if I'd annihilated you in some way, it doesn't mean I'd have got it. No. You know, that whole kind of, we all, we're all better. Yeah. Helping it, each other out. It's almost as if socialism works. <gasps> I mean, what an oh, idea. What would you say that for? Now we're off the air. So you've had a fantastically varied career. You've written books, journalism, comedy, and your range as an actress is incredible, right? From Two Doors Down to Doctor Who to Corrie. What is the secret of your versatility and longevity? Oh, fuck. Um, A, I don't think I'd ever describe myself as very successful. No, I definitely wouldn't because I've never got to the point of... the, The place I dreamt I would want to be was where you could say I'd like to do that and they'd go oh yes please so I never got there so I'm obviously not a jobbing actor I'm very very relieved to have got past that I think a mixture of determination pretty stroppy um being funny and that I'm still here that I just, I mean, I did, there were, I, there was a period when in my late twenties when I didn't work for a year and I completely lost, I mean, I just didn't get jobs for a year Mm. and, you know, every audition was a humiliation and of course, self-fulfilling prophecy. Every time I went for an audition, I'd be shit because I hadn't got the last one. Yeah. And I remember thinking, oh, I can't do this. And, um, and then thinking, but I literally don't know what else to do and I don't know what would make me happy. So if somebody had come along and gone, oh, I've got this course for you and I'd done it. Um, but I, I, think there's, I think there's a lot to, there is a lot to be said for just still being around and showing up. And I think I'm pretty good. I don't think I'm brilliant. I think I'm, I think I'm good to work with. I think I'm straightforward. I think I'm intelligent, which is not always an advantage for an actor. And I think I've given it my best shot. So I think that's why I'm still getting stuff. What was your favourite job? What was the highlight? I really loved doing Two Doors Down because I am Scottish, which you can hear from my accent. But no, my parents were Scots and Scotland is my sort of spiritual home. And so I love, love, love doing Two Doors Down. Uh, yeah, because I'm in Scotland and, you know, home from home. Lovely cast, I Lovely imagine. cast, yeah. great cast. But if, I, if you said you can only do one job again, it would be posh nosh because... I wrote it with John Cantor and Richard E. Grant. I wanted to do one of those awful food fascists. If you're serious about this risotto, you will get your Bataga in Sicily. And you're thinking, what the fuck's Bataga? And I've got to go to Sicily to get it. Otherwise, you're just some awful oaf who buys it in Sainsbury's. Um, we get our Bataga in a, in a weekend run. And you literally, you know, those shows, mm. and it was all about sort of food fascism and everything. And I just thought, and Richard, and of course, the other thing I wanted to get over in the show was those people in those marriages where you think, that's definitely a gay bloke. And why are they doing? We're so in love. We're so in love. And you're thinking, well, no, because he's definitely gay. Um, 
And um, we just, Richard and I just had an absolute howl doing it. And it was wonderful to do. And I loved all that kind of food fascism. And we made up, we, we made a whole language of, you know, you've got to embarrass these carrots for at least half an hour. And yeah, I just love doing it. It's on YouTube if anybody wants to see it. Posh Very not. funny. Very funny show. And weren't you lucky to have Richard E. Grant as well? Well, I'd known him from a job from 10 years before and we stayed friends. Mm. And he said, yes, I'm in. He's a, an unbelievable sport. Mm. He's incredibly good like that. And really funny. And very funny. Very he was funny. very, very funny in it. He did the wine. A remake sounds as though it's on. Oh, oh come yes. on. It wouldn't be with me in it, though, would it? But yes, it'd be good. <laughs> and do you, is there a dream job that you have that you haven't obviously done? I would genuinely have said that um, Two Doors Down was my dream job. And because oh. uh, when I got the script the first time, I thought, I remember thinking, I don't know how to manage this level of hope. I was so anxious. I knew they sort of, also, you know what it's like. You don't ever, I mean, maybe you do if you're Dawn or Jennifer or something, but I've never had a sense of how I'm spoken about at the BBC or why would anybody, you know, you you think, well, you're Meryl Streep and obviously goes, oh, we'd love to have Meryl Streep or mm. Dawn French or you're just the rest of us. Mm. And so I knew I'd been sent the script, but I didn't know how many other women like me were going for it I didn't know whether I was one of three that was being considered or mm. one of ten mm. and I just remember thinking I don't know how to manage I was so anxious I desperately wanted it and hope's been hard for me to manage all my life and um what do they say it's the hope that kills you and I just remember thinking how do I manage this level of hope and uh I managed it all right, as it turned out. But I did, I mean, I had to audition, I had to read and I had to audition for it. Um, as it turns out, there was only me and a couple of other women. Right. And, and then I had to do a chemistry read with Alex Norton. Um, but those, you know, it's so unknowable in our business. There's yeah, no, where's yeah. the, you know, you don't go, right, well, I've got the ex right exam results. So yeah. I'll definitely be okay because I've got my double first in no. biochemistry. Yeah. They can and take that it away hasn't. from you at the last minute. Can't yeah, they? you kind of go, wait, wait, wait. So, um, but yeah, I would have said that was my dream job. It's hmm. great. You've had your dream yeah, job. You've literally had it. Yeah. Oh, that's so funny you said about the hope. I'd forgotten. I'd forgotten that. that it's the hope that kills oh, you. Oh, it does kill you, doesn't it? And that's what's, I think, one of the incredibly hard things about parenting. You've got to engender hope in your kids. Of course you have. They've got to have hope. They've got to have aspirations. But you've also got to, you know, help them manage the disappointments yeah. without going, oh my God, I can't believe it. My, they didn't want my baby. Um, you know, how do they not want you? I'm going to get right down there now and tell them. So, uh, yes, I think I've done an all right job. I mean, my kids are pretty good. I do that terrible thing of going, oh, I'm sure you're going to get it. But if you don't, I mean, there's always sounds that, you know, just... got to remember that, you know... <laughs> yes. and, uh, yeah. Shut up, <laughs> Mum. <laughs> so, Arabella, you, of course, are a lifetime member now of Female Pilot Club. Oh, I am pleased. Yeah. Which is very exclusive. We don't just let anyone in. No, we oh, let so everyone No boys. <laughs> You let everyone in. Literally let everyone, everyone in. Everyone in. Everyone gets let in. But what other great woman of comedy would you like to nominate for membership? So it can be a writer, producer, performer or stand-up from the history of comedy whose only crime was a lumpy jumper. Oh, who would I like? Who would I nominate? 
I would nominate. Oh, um, God, there's so many. If you're uh, really torn, you can pick two. It has happened um, before. I would nominate Julia Davis, who I sort of discovered in a roundabout way. I think she's pretty amazing. And, oh, wow. Uh, I'd nominate Sophie Tucker. Sophie Tucker. Sophie Tucker. I actually did her on Mastermind uh, last year and did quite well. Um, I admire any woman that was doing what we would now call stand-up, you know, 100 years ago. Mm. You think that's got, that's pretty amazing. Mind you, you could argue that Music Hall and Vaudeville were actually better places for women than it, than television became. Mm. Because, of course, they had plenty of women doing mm. acts and, and plenty of men. Um, and it's somehow television, well, because television got dominated by men and then men went, tell you what we'll put on the telly, things blokes want to watch. Yeah. Mm. And where there's lots more money, you always get more blokes. More money in True. telly. More money, more power, more blokes. Money is power. Ah, that is true. Well, oh. Julia Davis is great. She's amazing, yeah. Yeah, wonderful, wonderful choices. How did you discover her? What's that story? We did a radio thing together and I went, oh, you're good. And then she didn't have any contacts, so I introduced her to the then writing team, Arthur, and um, my mind's gone blank, the guys who wrote Big Train, and they cast her in Big Train. And then I also introduced her to Steve Coogan and she did a live show with him. So, um, no, she does know. I mean, she does does know. She acknowledges me as her. And then she lived with me for a bit because she had nowhere to stay in London. And um, But I think she's amazingly talented. And hats off for you for helping another woman, just as we were talking about a minute ago. Always exactly. done that. And we've got Julia Davis. Thank you. She's brilliant. Well, great choices, Arabella. Oh. And that siren, that siren means... That siren's good because I've got to go somewhere now. Exactly. It is time for us to drop our landing gear, pull back on the joystick and prepare to leave some skid marks. Uh, We'll be back to take another female pilot up, up into the fabulous comedy world full of fantastic friends who love and underpay you. Understand, okay. You mean understand. I know what I mean, Emily. Thanks so much to our guest, Arabella Weir. Why not follow us at Female Pilot Club on Twitter and Insta? The podcast was created and produced by Kay Stonham and Emily Chase. It was edited and technically produced by Adam Bromley, with music composed by Tim Sutton. If you enjoyed the show, please do like, subscribe, share and review. Until next time, up, up and away! You can always have it, come on, let's